You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hello and welcome to the Wisden Cricket Weekly Podcast. Essex were crowned champions of the Bob Willis Trophy this weekend at Lords, securing their third first-class trophy in four years. England are 4-0 up in their T20i series against West Indies, and it turns out that the IPL is actually really good. Who knew, eh? I'm Yazrana, and with me today is the Wisden Cricket Monthly Editor-in-Chief, Phil Walker. Hello. The Wisden Cricket Monthly Staff Writer, Jim Wallace. Hello. And the Managing Editor of Wisden.com, Ben Gardner. Um, who no. doesn't even bother saying hello anymore no, we no. don't normally say hello it's not normally a call no I just thought I'd throw that one in there <laughs> feeling quite perky before we go into this week's cricket the cricketing world was shaken last week by the news of Dean Jones's sudden passing at the age of 59 Dean Jones was a mainstay of the Australian side in the 80s and the early 90s a pioneer in ODI cricket and later in life a very successful coach too particularly in Pakistan with Islamabad United in the Pakistan Super League Phil awful news yeah absolute shock as well uh, 59 years young, um, still working, obviously still uh, evidently in, in the prime of his working life, really. So yeah, juddering shock. I was at Lords at the time when it came through. Adam Collins, of course, was working there as well. And he, as a Victorian himself, had followed him right from the start, really. And there was a, yeah, sort of discernible sense of shock and grief that followed very quickly. Um, Jones, I never saw him play myself. Uh, he his last Ashes tour of England was in '89, and I was too young really to fully appreciate what kind of cricketer he was at the time. I was I, I was lost to the game, or lost in the game, by the time he became Durham's first captain, and was struck at the time by uh, what an interesting move that was. Really, you know, and, and his his personality was such that he was able to take that job on. He's hugely popular down there, or up there rather, and obviously both them joined him to get that, that great club up and running as a first-class county. Uh, that was towards the back end of his career. He made his name in the 80s, as, as we know. The, the innings that would have been touched on before uh, but deserves to be revisited was the, the innings at Chennai or Madras, as it was at the time. Uh, I, I had a book. One of, my, one of the most formative books that I had on cricket was by Peter Roebuck, The 100 Greatest Innings in the History of Cricket. Um, uh, and... He didn't order them, but the one that stuck in my mind the most from when I was about 10 or 11 and I first picked up this book was Dean Jones, 200 at uh, Chennai in, in what ended up being a tied test match, only you know, one of two tied test matches in history. Uh, by the, the end of that innings that was played out in 45 degree heat, uh, he had 
literally no idea where he was. He was being, uh, they were, they, his teammates were changing him, trying to find fresh clothes somewhere in a sweat-sodden dressing room. Uh, he was in all kinds of physical disrepair. Uh, Border, who was his captain at the time, was wheeling him back out onto the pitch. He had literally no idea where he was by the end of it and continued uh, to bat and bat and bat and bat. He Jones says he, has, he had no recollection at all of the last 50 runs. From 150 to 200, he had no recollection of it whatsoever. Within minutes of the, the innings finally coming to a close, he was on a drip. He was in hospital for three days, I think, afterwards. So it's, it's one of those game innings that's almost larger than the game. Uh, and in some respects, that was... That was the bloke himself. Uh, uh, so, yeah, a, a juddering moment, really, for cricket. And a, a, one of those moments, again, where you realise how intimately entwined the game is. Uh, you know, the, the, the story really affected um, people, obviously, in Australia primarily, but, but over here in England as well, and in India in particular, where he was hugely popular. So, so it's one of those moments where you realise just how, how much the game looks after its own and how much it hurts when, when one, of it, one of them falls. Mm. Mm. Anyway, enough from us Englishmen. Sam Perry from The Great Cricketer joins us in Australia to give us a perspective close to home on Jones. Um, so first off, Sam, thank you so much for joining the show. Um, for our listeners who might not know a whole lot about Dean Jones, how loved was he by the Australian public? Oh, he was super loved, yes. I mean, he was a, uh, you know, he was a guy who revolutionised ODI cricket before you even called it ODI cricket in Australia. And, you know, to place him in context, I mean, I'm 35. There's a uh, generation of guys, uh, particularly my age, who I think probably found themselves loving cricket more than they already did once they chanced upon Dean Jones. You know, he, he made cricket cool before it was cool with the way that he played. You know, he was unadulterated arrogance, uh, which really appealed you know, to me as a kid. He was, um, he was powerful. He had pace. Uh, you know, he turned... Twos into threes with the bat, uh, threes into twos with his rocket arm. Um, it was a it was a sight to behold in ODI cricket, and you know that was before his Test career, where he was kind of, um, you know, given a pretty tough time from selectors, despite averaging forty six. You know, he played fifty two Tests. Uh, he would lay claim, and he, he could rightly lay claim to um, having greatness, true greatness, taken away from him uh, in that sense. So, uh, an absolute yeah, wonderkind batsman, revolutionary cavalier. Uh, guy, so yeah, yeah. A lot of people have said how revolutionary he was as an ODI player, but what was it about him? And again, I don't think people people appreciate just how good he was. So even now in 2020, Michael Bevan is the only Australian to have more ODI runs than Jones at a better average. So what was it about Jones that was so revolutionary? I know a lot of people enjoy like looking through one day cricket with a bit of rose tinted spectacles, where you know a, a score of 200 plus on the board. Uh, would probably be enough after batting first, you know what I mean? Set your ring fields, bolts tight, stump to stump, and you'll be fine. Um, and that that strategy or that approach, that philosophy, largely held, you know, through the 80s and into the early 90s, uh, into the mid-90s. But um, but Jones was ahead of his time in that sense, you know. His, his strike rate right up there, his average right up there. And then the kind of, the, the ways he pushed the edges of the game could be thrilling and could be, it could be maddening. You know, he'd use the full width of the crease when he batted. He'd use the full length of the crease when he batted. His fielding standards were above everybody else's, um, you know, particularly as an outfielder and with his arms. So I guess he just, he was able to add those edges, uh, you know, to his game before it seemed to be overly important. And, and like I said, there was often a balance between the thrilling and the maddening. But, you know, you, you, you can't have the former without the latter. And it still happens in today's game. So... I think 
you know, a lot of people will remember him for that. He, he did, he brought a, le- a level of swagger and cool that only other countries ever tend to be able to bring when it comes to cricket. But, but he was one of the first, at least from my memory, who was able to do that in Australia. How much do you reckon that, um, that early end to his international career in particular kind of played a part in, in the making of his legend? Um, I was watching the highlights of his, uh, his 100 against Australia at, the M- at a full MCG uh, just after Australia got knocked out of a World Cup, which he wasn't selected for. The, the crowd go absolutely crazy for a guy called 100 against Australia. So how, how much of that was part of the legend of Jones? Oh, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think it would have. It's, it's funny you use that word legend, you know. We talked to Damien Fleming the other day and, and Jones's nickname among his team in many cases was often The Ledge. You know, he, he honestly carried himself like a legend. So I would say that um, it probably just changed his legend. You know, it kind of made him a little bit more of a, a cult figure. Um, when, you know, were he not treated the way he was by selectors, he may have just ended up being an out-and-out legend, you know. As it transpires, the guys who replaced him in those sides went on to become those things, uh, you know, with the War Brothers, you mentioned Michael Bevan before and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, I probably just added a little bit of um, a little bit of darkness, a little bit of cult status. Uh, it also kind of wound up um, his beloved Victorian fans. You know, he was a, he was a parochial Victorian often fell out with administration, but he was just so loved by Victorian fans. I know um, Russell Jackson wrote a piece in ABC here saying that, you know, it was, it was like a wound to the soul of Victorians and Melburnians when he was treated the way he was by selectors. So it definitely became part of his story. But, I mean, I think had he not been treated that way and he was given a full run of his career at test level, he would have just ended up being a legend. And what about your own personal memories of Jones? You, you shared a Twitter thread of one particular experience when you were, when you were eight. First ever favourite player, for the reasons I said uh, I was really lucky enough to go to a lot of cricket when I was young and when I was eight years old, my parents took me to a game between uh, Australia and New Zealand in 94 at the SCG. And just the way the SCG set up, the players are actually quite close uh, to the crowd I and mean, that's often in England as well, I know, but it's not often the case in Australia. And uh, yeah, Jones was just surveying the scene as a 15 to 20 feral kids, you know, bade for autographs and signatures, uh, banging their miniature bats against the wall and uh, you know, for those who were able to get signatures, there was a kind of economy within an economy. You know, you would like, if you got a signature on a bat, that was pretty good. You'd bring a magazine, you get a little signature, but like, and you tend to only ever get the peripheral players. Uh, and so you'd often get your, with respect to these guys who are internationals, you know, you'd, you'd be your Paul Rifles, you know, your early stage Glenn McGrath's uh, and that kind of like, you know, Damien Fleming would come down and go, okay, well, you know, it's an Australian player, that's great. But you would, you'd never get the War Brothers. Mark Taylor would never give an autograph. And Dean Jones was, you know, the superstar of superstars. So when he walked up to survey the scene, we couldn't believe it. And I was just eight years old standing behind this throng of kids, too little, too timid to make any demands. I just thought, well, if he starts signing, I'll see what I can do. And he looked at me and I, I swear he... You know, with, with classic, uh, you know, impudence of Dean Jones, he just sort of poo-pooed the manners of these kids and he eyed me off and he brought out a pair of, you know, brand new kookaburra gloves from behind his back and tossed them to me got quite deliberately over the heads of these kids, you know, pinpoint to my chest, took it on the chest. I haired away, you know, before the feral seagulls came after me. Uh, but, you know, he had, a, he had a fan for life, uh, if he didn't already, <laughs> from me once he did that. And, um, yeah, my parents you know, suggested wisely or not that I should put that away, you know, and, 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 and keep it as a souvenir. There was no chance of that. Um, probably reflects more on my attitude to material possessions, but I wore them as soon as I could. And, um, yeah, from under 10s through to about under 12s or 13s when they were just riddled with holes and um, dried sweat and stuff. But I had these, you know, 
Dean Jones gloves that went up to my elbows made me feel invincible. Uh, and so, yeah, that was, um, I don't know where they are now. This is more about me again, but um, you know, oh, that's a really, really treasured memory. I mean, I think all kids remember when players interact with them and um, particularly back then. And, you know, that was comfortably the, just the coolest, um, most memorable treasured interaction I ever had with a player. I'll always keep that with me. On to this week's cricket. Essex were crowned champions of the Bob Willis Trophy. Alistair Cook reminded us just how good he still is, scoring a first innings 172, which proved vital. They ended up winning it on account of scoring more first innings runs than Somerset in a game that was ultimately drawn. Phil, you were there. It was a really good game. It didn't quite have the epic finish that we really wanted, but it was still a really good game between two quite evenly matched sides. Yeah, to me, I was there for the vast majority of it. I was there at the end and it felt at the end like an oddly apt anti-climax, a a slight (laughs) kind of bathed in in bathos if you like bathed in bathos mm. what a load of nonsense that is <laughs> uh, but it will be remembered for the for the cook knock um, I'm not exaggerating it's the best I've ever seen in bat caveat it's not a high class international attack although it had some international quality bowlers in there including Craig Overton who I think well massively impressed me we can come to that in a bit but as a as a ball striking clinic from cook I've never seen him play better and uh, and there was a serenity around the way that he went about it, but there was a dominance as well that you, you didn't always see uh, when he was when he was playing playing for England. That said, um, there were also some quality performances around it as well. You know, two lefties from Somerset, unheralded certainly up until the start of this season. Eddie Eddie Byron made a brilliantly sort of gnarled and gritty hundred to to, to save them or keep them in the game in the, on the first day day or two. Uh, without that, it would have been a comfortable result, I think, for Essex, really. It was a really good toss for Essex to win to insert Somerset first morning. But then the second innings, Tom Lamanby making it, and he's been mentioned on this show, third hundred of the summer, um, high-class work. Uh, He's tall, he's elegant, he's got a back-foot game. I was saying to you before the show, and this is a geek point, but he bats just like Matthew Elliott, absolute spit of Matthew Elliott, who was a gun opener for Australia for a couple of years. There was quality and there was class, really, from from top to bottom. Uh, the, the final day, I think I can understand why they had the ruling in place that the first innings uh, advantage could be crucial. I can understand that with a game played in autumn, even with a fifth day tacked on, you still run the risk of ending up with a draw. But the draw became irresistible to Essex from about half past one that afternoon. Now... If they'd had to live a little, if they'd been forced by the ruling to live a little, uh, then it would have been a more persuasive and enthralling final day, Mm. I think. Um, But they did what they had to do, and this is what they do, isn't it? Time after time after time. I think I wrote at the end of the day that they've forgotten how to lose. Yeah, well, I I was just wondering what your, if you had a preferred solution, would you just have shared title in the case of a draw? Because that's, either way, you're going to have one team who, if they draw, will win the title kind of thing. I mean, I, I don't hate the idea of a, of, a shared, of a shared title. I mean, if you get to Laws and you can't split them after five days, then maybe that's what's fair. But. I think they should keep going until the weather just becomes too cold that it's the <laughs> toughest team that remains out on the field into November. Day two was a joke, by the way. I know it's boring <laughs> talking about the weather, but day two was an absolute joke to be playing cricket. <laughs> what did you Just Arctic, sub-Arctic. <laughs> Three jumpers. Um, it, it's a good question. I mean, in an ideal world, and... My word, we don't live in one of those. Uh, that final would take place 
first week in September, last week in August, after possibly a 10-game tournament, as mm. we've seen this year in three groups of six, as we've discussed. That final over five days at the end of August, with light not being a factor, the weather being better, you get a result over five days, uh, without a doubt. And then the first innings lead thing might, might not be necessary, I would say. But for this one-off, at that time, it was probably necessary. Mm. It just... it. it enabled Essex to dead bat their way through and and if they'd been forced into getting a result it would have been a far, mm. more interesting final day. Um Ben were you were you a bit disappointed by the initial coverage of the final? Obviously it was great to have this showpiece final that was streamed uh, on Sky, Sky's YouTube, on BBC, on the ECB website. But there was literally no build up and as brilliant as the commentary was on the final, the tech let the coverage down quite a lot and at times became it was actually quite hard to watch. Yeah, it's, it, it was a, a, actually a, a real shame, and I think I think it's what was interesting is so so I'll, I'll first outline what the issues were. So especially on the first day, try to remember all of them. So the Sky Sports stream, there was no sound to begin with. That was just when they were doing the pregame build up. It started just as the first ball started, which was fine. But then throughout the whole day, the sound was out of sync. So you'd be watching it, you'd hear an appeal, and then you'd see the ball hit his pad, which actually made it quite a tough watch, really. Uh, and that the BBC's was uh, that you didn't have the first 20 minutes of the coverage, you missed the first wicket. And then on later days, it's it's a much smaller complaint, but still the, 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 just the sound was too quiet on the, on the ECB and YouTube stream, which was quite an odd issue to have, but that's what we had. It was actually, although you had all the cameras and you had a very high calibre level of, of commentator, you know, the likes of Michael Atten, uh Adam Collins, all, all, all the BBC stalwarts, it was a, so it was a great listen from that point of view. Um, it did let itself down a bit and I think that there's a there's an attitude within the county fan base to sort of be happy with like whatever you're given with kind of whatever like bone you get thrown from the top table of, of Sky Sports basically but I do think that county cricket deserve better I mean you, you saw with, with the numbers you got on the live stream I think Sky the cum- just just on their YouTube things the cumulative views across all five days was nearing a million views which is a not insignificant number and a not insignificant commercial number as well so there, there, there would have been value in making this a properly high quality thing they were also limited by the fact that the game was being played at lords where there's significant building work being going on which is limits where they can place the cameras which also meant there was no uh footage from behind the bowler's arm from one of the ends which was unavoidable sky couldn't have done anything or the BBC sky couldn't, sky couldn't have but it's it's just it strikes me as a baffling decision to hold the final at lords in that case when you know that it's not the ideal ground to stage cricket at the moment. i mean i mean you had 17 other you know county first class grounds lying empty that time and you were playing the game at the one that couldn't properly stream it basically yeah no i hear that um so yeah it was it, it and, and i mean you know i mean it's tough because it in, in a way this was the most accessible county cricket game it's ever been because you know you could watch it like almost wherever you were in the world and uh across like all variety of, of platforms but the actual quality itself and yeah because and when you're working on a game like this and you, you know when there's the ipl going on a women's game you're, you're often just listening to it at the same time as doing other things and so from that point of view the commentary was exceptional it was just uh just just that that let it down yeah. mm. and we talked a lot this summer about pretty much every bowler on both sides basically averaging nothing this season um in the final on a, on a better wicket a, a test wicket really um the bowlers found it slightly harder going which kind of made highlighted the guys who are maybe that level slightly above jim who who, who really impressed you in the bowling department in the final uh, Harmer again it's obvious but it's uh, Phil Wo- 
a, a piece about him the, last week and it's basically he nailed it when he said batsmen just survive against him and if they do try and play a shot against him it's often when they get out so I mean it's no surprise that um, just always probing away it's Paul, looking more and more likely that he's going to be back in, with South Africa isn't it Harlan? yeah which I mean it's all I don't understand all these the, the Colpac rulings and all that sort of stuff did he, did he apply for well essentially come come the end of the Colpac option he will have to then uh, in effect reapply to be an overseas player for Essex yeah. which Essex would be mugs not to take him up on that of course but then that does in theory open him up to going back to playing for South Africa mm. and I desperately hope that he does you know mm. yeah a I player mean, as, as great as him arguably the best finger spinner in the world not to be playing test cricket especially South African test cricket where it's kind of on its knees and financially it's absolutely bereft at the moment and sponsors are legging it in droves from South African cricket to have a player of that kind of calibre back in the mix and it may may well that it'll apply to other Colpacks as well who have been picking up a tidy pay packet in England and now have to be reconfigured as overseas then then mm. that's got to be a positive thing for the world game I would say yeah. sorry to cut you off Jim no. uh, Jamie Porter uh, looked really good Overton looked like he put a yard of pace on Phil did that was that what it looked like o- Overton as I, as I mentioned Overton to me uh and it was a kind of a lo-fi thing, incidentally, right? So you're not behind the bowler's arm where we were. You're stuck in your in your tavern suite box with your four people in it, all in the corners, and it's all very socially distanced and so on. And obviously, we're not behind the bowler's arm because you're not allowed to be. And there was no speed gun or anything like that. But from the naked eye, having seen him before and felt he's a bit lumbering and 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 a bit cumbersome in his approach to the to the to the pitch, seeing him here, he looked so much more fluent and lithe and agile and there was a different kind of energy to his to his bowling as well I thought he looked like a test match bowler uh, and then I spoke to someone who follows Somerset and knows a lot more about this stuff than me and he, he was saying that over the over the summer obviously he's been biosecured to within an inch of his life and so on and so on he's been working a lot at finding the optimum pace of, a, of his run-up through the crease so you get to a point where you know, you're propelled through the crease at the right kind of pace. So you maintain your control, but you also don't leave anything back. And, and it's it's the Mark Wood thing, right? So as we know, Mark Wood's extended run-up was not just to try and protect his body, but also to get the optimum propulsion through the crease. This is what this is what they've been working on with, uh, with Overton. It's definitely now showing, certainly to my naked eye anyway. Uh, he was troubling the batsman effortlessly, bowled long spells, uh, he also made 100 runs for once out mm. as well in the in the match. Uh, he England like him. He could have played a Test match this summer. Uh, and yeah, he's, he'll be around the system now. I think um, for for quite a while. I wouldn't be surprised at all if 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 he is added to that kind of coterie of quicks and becomes quite a, quite a key key figure for them. Yeah, we've got to mention Lewis Gregory before Somerset fans get too angry. He did take eight wickets in the game. Um, yeah. Yeah, bustling in on his on his little legs. Yeah, um, uh, can I? So on on uh, Lewis Gregory. No, no, a couple of things on Simon Harmer. So I think I think it'd be, it will be interesting to see what Stafford do if he does return to the fold because there is quite a strong argument for him. Even though I agree that he might be the best finger spinner in the world, that he might not play every game. Essentially, like I think at home they may well stick with Keshav Maharaj purely because. While well, you might always want to spin, oh, I'd rather face. I, I, I know, but uh, more just for the uh, 
for hitting these transformation sure. targets like if you're going to sort sure. of reduce in quality in one area that seems a sensible place to do it and then and then he, uh and then the other point was on, on harmer you're right that most players jimmy right that most players set out to just defend him one mm. who didn't was tom lamanby in that mm. hundred and there are a couple of really like strokes that sort of suggest there was like a really high class player has been in there. there there was one that was totally. I, I think there's, there's a lot of players who when they decide to come down the track to the spinner they sort of just launch and come miles down and maybe they get a good piece of it and send it for six but there's the difference with him was there was times when he was kind of just nimbly shuffling down just a few steps just to change it just at, just slightly and there was one where he did that and then just sort of stroked it through mid-wicket all along the floor and you're like that's to, to do that against the, the premier bowler really in the county game spoke to a, a real talent and obviously the, you know the English cricket history is littered with players who flourish for a season and then faded away but he, yep. he looks as he looked amazing and, and yeah. what is its third ton of the Bob Willis uh third first class ton um first time the Arctic Monkeys went to Glastonbury they headlined it first time Tom Lamanby played at Lords he got a ton <laughs> <laughs> not that you prepared that line before the show at all <laughs> I just know that from the top of my head yeah <laughs> um Ben quickly on 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 Jack Leach um Jack Leach took his first first class wicket in 309 days with a kind of new look approach to the crease he's much quicker he's, he's kind of running in almost um how do you think he bowled because for a lot of the summer we've been talking about leach versus best somerset have opted to go with leach over best even though they said that he was 100 percent available for selection despite his move to yorkshire next summer how do you think leach did well I, th- I think on the first day arguably you saw that i think that um oh, not not the first day but when he first came on to bowl he uh he looked unthreatening and although he sort of kept the runs down he, have we discussed in the show how in a way in England you can keep the runs down without bowling particularly well as a spinner because uh, you know if you put enough sweepers out then any sort of less than full-blooded shots just end up picking those out and you go for three singles in and over and there's there's no pressure being created so and, and at, at that point of view you kind of thought yeah there's not there's not too many there's not too much that's threatening but there's also not too much that's restricting either but actually I thought he bowled pretty t- nicely on the last day he uh he started with a Jaffa uh he got Lawrence out OBW, uh, and I, th- I thought I thought there he, he he did bowl nice and probably I mean Bess has done okay from the summer, but actually it's quite a, a low bar to clear in terms of how well he's bowled in an England shirt this summer. I thought that was that you know that was the it's it's a, in a way we've got two quite talented spinners, but there's uh, right now where they both are is is not especially high I guess for for a, a various reasons. So. Yeah. Yeah, we got. We also got um, us, us two. We got a bit nerdy the other day. We were looking at the differences between uh, the effectiveness of spinners in India compared to UAE, where the England series is more likely to be held at this point in time than in India. And it's a dirty job, lads, but someone's got to do it. Yeah, someone's got to do it. Finger spinners don't do quite as well in in the UAE as they do in India. And England have loads of pace bowling options and loads of all rounders, so you could probably balance the side in a way that you're not as reliant on. Finger spinners like last time England went over to India, they picked three finger spinners and a and a leggy on that tour. So England might not not might not not necessarily have to do the same thing. Yeah. Just again. as an aside on the spinner debate, because we we talked about this for a year or so on this show, haven't we? And and you've thrown me some lines that I've said uh, thrown thrown them back at me, as you do. Um, I was speaking to someone who's coached invo- been involved in coaching them both been very vo- involved in coaching spinners in England for 10 years and more and and he was saying that he says Leach is far and away the best best option that England have um uh he did also add the the Adil Rashid caveat as well uh Graham Swan was interesting on Rashid I thought in the gu- mm. in the Guardian um issued kind of a come and get me plea didn't he mm. uh, 
properly. Quite, you, you, quite you, literally. You, know, you haven't discussed this on pods that I've not been on before. No, we've not. Oh, okay. not, not. More, more of why haven't you already come and got me? Yeah. 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 <laughs> and, it, and it, also, it had a kind of partridge element to it because he was in yeah. his hotel room in India, wait, or, or, sorry, yeah. in the UAE, waiting to do his, his stint on something or other for Star Sports, I think it was. Dismantled his Corby trouser press and it, was uh, given the guard. It feel a bit ring. like that, but he did make a number of good points, you know, and, and we are kidding ourselves if we think that Adil Rashid is, is just going to fall back into Red Bull cricket without a hell of a lot of a lot of practice beforehand, you know? Because a lot of people in that interview, uh, it's worth looking up, by the way, it was in the Observer a week and a half ago. A lot of people kind of mocked Swan's cockiness, something that people have said about Swan for quite a long time. But actually, uh, I thought the most interesting bit from the interview was how much he attributed his success in Test Cricket to Mushtaq Ahmed, mm. saying that Mushy prepared him mentally for the game. So he had the, the skills, basically. He didn't, he didn't say Mushy gave him that. He said the mental side of the game, Mushy helped him uh, immensely and he was basically saying that he doesn't think test spinners can really reach their maximum potential without that help and he looked at the he used the example of Don Best and Jack Leach not having a specialist spin coach with them this summer and how that must have affected them and you and saying that you can't expect Adam Rashid to go from uh, being an excellent white ball spinner to instantly nailing the mentality as much as anything else of yeah. what's required from a test match spinner yeah. so I think it's, it's a very interesting point yeah. and well, I, I was thinking that Cockiness is a, a more valuable trait in English spinners than in any other type of cricketer, I think, because there's going to be so many days that just knock your confidence when, you, like, through no fault of your own, basically, there's going to be, you know... That's, but, why, they like, that's why, why they like best. It's one of the reasons why they mm, like yeah, him. Yeah. As, as we've said before, you know, he's got, he's got a, the right amount of cockiness for his, for his age and his experience. I think you said that ever since he's been 15, he's wanted to be the England number one spinner. Yeah, which, which yeah, you can definitely, that comes across. That definitely comes across. He sits yeah. well in that chair, mm. <laughs> whether he turns it or not. Yeah. After the final, the aftermath of Essex victory was soured somewhat by images of an Essex player pouring alcohol on a Muslim teammate, Faroz Cushy, during the celebrations on the Lord's balcony. Essex skipper Tom Wesley issued a statement on the incident saying... On behalf of myself and the team, we would like to apologise for any offence that was caused during our celebrations at Lords on Sunday. At Essex, we believe we have built a strong dressing room culture that supports one another both on and off the field. As a group, we have come together today and discussed the event and on reflection, we are disappointed that we let this happen. Moving forward, the squad will be more responsible and aware of our actions and will continue to learn and develop with the help of the ECB and the PCA. Phil, Mr Essex, what do you make of that? response uh it has obviously the whiff of of pr to it um but it, it's also a pretty sincere response uh, i've spoken to tom wesley about it uh they're pretty embarrassed um uh the lad uh Feroz is is okay he's fine um uh there wasn't really a response within the dressing room but when it was drawn attention to via some journalists then uh then they moved as fast as they could to try and try and if you like a horrible phrase but own the situation you know um the lad who did the pouring in the first place is a second team cricketer i think he's played maybe one game this year not even this year so he's just played one okay. first class seeming game uh he's feeling pretty bashful about things um i think it was over exuberance combined with a degree of insensitivity i think um Possibly it's not often that a county team throws a load of champagne around. Whereas if you play for the England cricket team, then you do that most weeks. <laughs> so it's, 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 a, it's a lack of awareness of the sensitivities around such things, which 
uh, I think, drives that statement. And the sincerity of that statement comes from that. Uh, no one that I'm aware of around the club doesn't want to be having these conversations. And Essex is a proudly multicultural club. Um, and its modern history is, it hinges on that as well. I also know Tom Wesley personally reasonably well, um, and he's a diamond, he's an absolute diamond. So he will be personally embarrassed and hurt, and the statement that he made would not have been forced out of his mouth by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, the thing that really sticks in my gullet uh, is the, the responses, the rancid, oh, I was going to swear there, the rancid, vile nature of so many of the responses on social media to Essex's statement and Tom's statement himself. If that is reflective of large swathes of English cricket fans and Essex cricket fans, then uh, they can go and do something else as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, so just, uh, it's a discussion that, you know, probably require a book to get through fully, but... I'm writing one. Okay, well, it it, it raises just the um, English cricket's sort of tricky relationship with alcohol consumption, how that kind of runs through its veins basically and uh you know this this is just one small aspect of it but it while England in a way they manage it well when Moan Ali and Adil Rashid step aside for the celebration shots there is a slight sadness in that and especially when Moan Ali led Worcester Rapids to the T20 Blast title in 2018 and then had to as the, as the captain and you know their main player in that run then had to step away for the uh the main shots from Getty it's like it's mm. it's it's just a, it's just a slight shame I think and it's something that I kind of hope that they would look at I mean I know they also have champagne sponsors all these big cricket teams and they have obligations to those yeah just if push comes to shove just have non-alcoholic champagne or something you know for, for these sort of ceremonial moments uh yeah a, re- a regrettable moment um exacerbated by the responses absolutely um some more stories on racism in the county game this mm. week Mosin Arif a former Glamorgan twos player has opened up on the racism he experienced during his time in the game in an exclusive interview with The Telegraph, as well as recounting a racist incident involving someone currently involved in the professional game, Arif accused Glamorgan of institutional racism. Talking about an incident that happened in 2005, he alleged that somebody on the books at Glamorgan at the time, who still works in the professional game and enjoyed a long county career, said, shut up, you packy. Why are you speaking like that? Haven't you got your corner shop to go to? After Arif was heard speaking Hindi to an Indian teammate. On his time at Glamorgan, Arif said, there was definitely not enough support there for Asians. Glamorgan didn't give a damn about me. Glamorgan issued a statement in response to Arif's claims, saying we are deeply concerned to learn of Mohsin's experience within our game in Wales. Recent societal events have led us all to evaluate our roles in being inclusive and diverse, and we all in cricket recognise the need to change our sport for the better. Cricket is not where it should be, and we are obviously saddened that Mohsin's experience confirms that. In Yorkshire, Roger Pugh, the chairman of the Yorkshire South Premier League, has resigned from his position less than a month after launching into a personal attack on Nazim Rafiq in a blog post. that was. Pugh's resignation post made no reference to the blog post and did not include an apology. So last week, we said on this show we wouldn't stop talking about the stories of racism in the English game. And we're not going to stop talking about it anytime soon. As you may or may not know, I'm, I'm not white. And to be honest, a lot of what's come out in the last two months doesn't surprise me at all. What has been disheartening, as Phil alluded to, is actually seeing the depressing reaction to all this online. This is not something that's going away. In, a- in actual fact, we're probably seeing that it's more prevalent than we previously thought. The majority of the comments under the under the Feroz Cushy story, when it was initially posted by Essex, 
questioned its importance and extraordinarily laid the blame at him for being there as if it's unreasonable mm. to expect your teammates not to pour alcohol on you. Mm. The game, and to be honest, wider society has a serious, serious, deep-rooted problem here. When a non-white person speaks out about racism, they're met with swathes of people questioning their motives, accusing them of lying, and not actually listening to what they're saying and taking anything they're saying on board at all. That some, not all, but some environments aren't welcoming enough to people of all backgrounds. That's all people are saying. It really is that simple. Um, anyway we'll we will continue to talk about racism in the english game and And, if if there's something to take from this year it's that that these conversations can't be uh buried they can't be subsumed anymore uh the genie's out the bottle on this and while it sticks in the craw to see as you say the responses of of many not a few of many let's be honest there's not a few bad apples but the game can't stop having these conversations from top to bottom um, and thankfully, Glamorgan responded quickly in a way that Yorkshire didn't, to be honest, to the, the Azim Rafiq stories. Uh, clubs have to be proactive. They have to be thinking on their feet. They have to be asking difficult questions, not from a PR perspective, but from, a, from the perspective of the game's soul, I would say. And if nothing else from this, uh, at least we've now got to a point where no longer can we bury this stuff under the carpet. And the ECB, thankfully, are taking a lead and being quite quite open and graphic and candid in their own responses to these stories. Um, and we collectively have to keep talking. Mm. Anyway, send your contract. Yeah, sorry. Um, Kent's Zach Hawley, Surrey's Ollie Pope and Warwick's Dom Sibley all received test central contracts for the first time. Johnny Bairstow lost his, while Mark Wood also missed out. Jim, has Johnny Bairstow played his last test? It looks like it. Um, and he's got six test centuries, which is quite a few more than some of the people who have been given a chance. But I think he just turned 30. They They obviously want to move 31. They obviously want to move um, in a different direction, freeing Bairstow up to probably become a bit of a T20 mercenary and an ODI player. I think he's still very much part of their white ball plans. Uh, But yeah, I think Butler's performance this summer sort of put a stop to all the, the keeping questions and unfortunately for Bairstow, you know, he obviously is a he's a great player, but he doesn't, for me, have quite the defensive game for Test cricket. He's a very attacking batsman, very bottom-handed heavy and all that sort of stuff. But um, I think potentially with this this central contract news, it looks like England have gone a different way. Mm. I think for, for, for me, the, the Bairstow story, and I think in Test cricket, is coming to an end as well. It just shows how difficult it is for the modern player. I think more than any other Englishman really to excel in all formats, at least modern batsmen, because uh, because here we have with Bester we have a player who is we know he's good enough to be a, an excellent Test cricketer as he was in 2016 when he had a, a, a fantastic year, uh, and obviously right now he's one of the best white ball openers in the world. Uh, so he he has a chance to be world class in both formats. The only thing is, there's no really significant criticism is to say that he can't do both of those things at the same time and because it's been well documented how what he kind of did to succeed in ODI cricket was sort of open his stance up so he could open the offside up uh, and he can kind of you know carve bottles all, all, all over the place there and then in but in test cricket it kind of means that there's that just not that that base there to, to defend which you need to do much more often and the other thing that compounds this is just the schedule means that even if Besso wanted to sort of try and be a an all-form player again uh, he's just not going to get 
the time to really. I mean, if uh, if, if there is another IPL early or earlier next year, beginning of the county season next year, which seems possibly uh, well, seems likely, uh, then he's not going to get the time to play any county cricket, and England not going to pick him unless he scored some first class runs. I think, uh, and he's going to have to. You know, he, he would have to find a way to sort of have two different techniques for different formats. You'd think. Uh, and it's it's just that there's not the time in the calendar to do that. And unless you are like an absolute freak and like the like one of like four players that exist kind of at any one time, then you can't do all three. And so it's no shame on Bearstow, but it does sort of suggest that that those are, that diverging trend is just going to continue going further apart. And also, so the players will be taking pay cuts this year, but it's also a lot of money he's losing here. So the he's not going to reject an IPL contract, or it would be a very difficult condition, uh, very difficult decision for him to reject an IPL contract. I mean, looking at some of the other uh, awarding or non-awardings of contracts, um, I guess it is quite interesting that Don Best has only been given an increment contract, um, given that he played, uh, he's the only English spinner to play a test match this summer. Um, and I guess, Phil, slightly interesting that Ollie Robinson's not been given a, a pace bowling development contract. Those three are, three bowlers who got there were Sakima Mood, Ollie Stone and Craig Overton. Considering that Ollie Robinson was ahead of Craig Overton at one point this summer. He very nearly played a test match. Mm. Um, Overton seems like he's been developing for years and years and years, doesn't he? He's only 26. <laughs> yeah. I think they're the okay. same age. Um, yeah, I was surprised. <laughs> Ollie Robinson's definitely one of the one of the coming men in the scene department. Uh, so surprised I didn't see his name anywhere. I think Mark Wood uh, can maybe feel a little frustrated um, he's done very little wrong <laughs> in Test cricket. He's done quite a lot of things right in Test cricket, really, in the last twelve months or so, or you know, nine, nine, ten months. Uh, but it doesn't mean that they can't be picked, and we, we have to always bear that in mind. You know, um, we've had bloated central contract lists before. They've streamlined it last year before the virus. This year, it was never going to be any more. And I think they might have actually added a couple of names to mm. to the list from from last year in terms of volume of names. Uh, yeah, it, it didn't really throw up too many surprises. Um, Moeen Ali not in the test squad, but then he wasn't even last year. I think, you know, that ship has probably sailed. Uh, so, yeah, not too many surprises, really. Uh, and and these are guides rather than, you know, there's nothing stringent about this, really. It affects people's pay packets, sure. Uh, but it doesn't massively affect their their chances as such. Does know? it reflect the thinking of the selectors though? So it doesn't seem that long ago that Ed Smith was sort of saying that Johnny Burstow is still part of our plans, you know, after they dropped him, uh, left him out at the end of the Ashes summer. And then all of a sudden, well, a year later, he's he's not got, he's not part of the Red Bull team. He's not played a test this year. And it, that sort of seems to be his last chance. Again, with someone like Bess, he's, I wonder if he's a victim of, having played a lot, been given a lot of chances, but not really done anything majorly impressive that they're still holding back on him. You know, you feel like if he'd have taken 10 more wickets this summer or produced some match-winning spells or really ragged it, then they might have given him one. But mm. it feels like it's a reticence. So I don't know if we should read into the, the thing that it's maybe, yes, they can still be picked, but it's the way that the selectors are sort of leaning. Mm. Yeah. De definitely. I mean, best is paid as... As many, if not more, test matches as Zach Crawley this summer, this mm. year rather. Yeah. And Crawley's been given a full one, understandably, yeah. of course. But yeah, that's yeah, definitely a fair point. I wonder if if the Ollie Robinson, because while these are these contracts are sort of a recognition of achievement and of thinking, they're also there's a pragmatic thing in terms of how much you're allowed to control a player's workload if they're centrally contracted, and they might think that what's best for Mahmood, especially Ollie Stone, and 
probably Craig Owen to an extent, is being able to have them more inside that, uh, you know, that, that England setup where they can sort of prepare for them. Maybe if Craig Owen wants to add, add a little bit more pace, they can do that more effectively when he can work with England. Whereas Ollie Robinson has been kind of developing just fine at Sussex and playing only for Sussex. And uh, if he can continue to do that, then then he'll be a force. And in a way, maybe it's almost a mark of his own success in the county game that they don't feel they need to almost go more hands-on with him, which is what giving a contract will allow them to do. Mm. Um, in case anyone's wondering, Joe Denley has lost his whiteboard contract uh, a day in of In case national... anyone's wondering, how dare you? <laughs> <laughs> a national day of morning beckons. Um, England are 4-0 up against West Indies at the moment. Sarah Glenn starred with bat and ball in the second tee, 20 eye, scoring 28, 26 rather from number eight before taking two for 24 late in the day. Nat Skiver scored 82 in the third T20i after Ben bigged her up on last week's show. And Amy Jones continued her good form in the middle order with a half century in the fourth T20. Um, the series concludes this evening. Sarah Glenn is now building up quite an impressive record now for England over, over a number of games, Phil. You spoke to her recently. Um, both with bat and ball, she's a serious addition to this England team. Yeah, massively. Uh, wrist spin, doesn't matter what format of the game uh, is pivotal, but especially in women's cricket, especially in short format women's cricket, it's uh, it's crucial, really. Um, uh, she's a natural. She's also um, so ingrained in cricket that it's a joke. So <laughs> her mother visited the cricket club in Denby. In Derbyshire? Yeah. Yeah, your neck of the woods? <laughs> yeah, yeah, she's a local. Visited the cricket club before she'd even gone home for the first time. So, Sarah Glenn, Wait, newborn. So, so, she been born. so, hold on. So, she <laughs> went from the hospital to Denby CC with Sarah, the newborn, to meet the family, meet the friends, spend the afternoon there with the with the newborn before then finally taking taking her home. Register her as a player for the... So <laughs> she was already a Denby CC stalwart before she'd even set foot or rather staggered uh, into her own family home. She is so <laughs> much a part of Denby Cricket Club that it's a joke. The whole family play there uh, from top to bottom. She's played men's cricket since she was a kid. She credits men's cricket with her development as well. She's very proud of the work she does in men's cricket. Um, so, so she is one of these characters that uh, was almost destined, preordained to become uh, the cricketer of quality that she obviously is. She's really kind of bashful kind of character. She's still getting finding her way, uh, but she she's in that little cohort. Obviously, Sophie Eccleston and Maddie Villiers as well, and the three of them are, are developing really beautifully, really, and they're all in their very early twenties. Slow bowling is is the key in, in in women's cricket, and England have got three very good ones. Yeah, I, I think that the 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 fact that she's a leg spinner almost, I think, well, for me at least, I kind of doubted how good she actually was when she came into the side because England have had such a hole for so long. You kind of thought they would try anyone who came up and, and bowl it with their wrists rather than their fingers, uh, and and it, it compounded by the fact that uh, every other side in the world has had one, two, sometimes three absolutely quality players. Calling like a, a player as good as. Uh, Amanda Jade Wellington can't get an Australia side all the time because uh, they've got George Wareham, who's e- equally amazing or well better. And uh, uh, but yeah, she's 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 properly kind of almost seems like the the whole package has been a quite quickly. I mean, and yeah, and Sophie Eccleston just continues to be the the best barrel in the world and could could well be one of the all time greats when she's done. Uh, and yeah, it's really exciting times. Sarah Glenn wants to be an all rounder, right? She's been working on a batting and she's come out and said that she wants to fill that all rounder role. Uh, in that side so she's filling it already very yeah. well yeah, yeah. And, and that's actually that's not insignificant because I guess Catherine Brunt 
I mean, you know, she keeps extending the end of that career. And now 2022 looks like a huge year for women's cricket with what an Ashes, two World Cups. That that might well be what she's targeting. But if she doesn't make it there, then Sarah Glenn is, is in that mould as a batter, I think. One, like a, pr- a proper finisher who can come out in the last over a game and sort of smash a couple of boundaries, basically. Um, the the Rachel Hayho Flint trophy concluded this weekend with the Southern Vipers winning that one. Jordan Adams continued her sublime form in the competition with an 80 in the final and Charlotte Taylor took six for 34 um, to seal a 38 run win for the Vipers in the final in Australia Australia have beaten New Zealand 2-1 in the T20i series in the final T20i though New Zealand ended a 13 game losing streak against the Aussies in the final game there uh, Ashley Gardner was the player of the series for the Aussies Ben it's always good to see Australia lose but especially in women's cricket at the moment <laughs> yeah they are uh, they're obviously amazingly consistent in some ways that's sort of enthralling to watch if not enjoyable from an English perspective but they're also kind of uh, I think that they're, they're developing that that cockiness that the men's team had of just kind of you know we're, we're better than you no matter who you put out and no matter who, who we put out kind of thing uh, uh, but yeah it's it, I think it's, it's nice actually just to see New Zealand do well because there's been a, a slightly low ebb for a while obviously had that tournament in Australia that they didn't make the semis four, but actually did, did get quite close they they pushed uh, was it Australia close in the, in the last group game they played I think uh obviously didn't make the semi-finals of that of that world cup here so it's been quite a long time but 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 in that time have had some of their you know their greatest players like Sophie Devine and uh, and Susie Bates do significant things so they're they're still a, an Amy Sasso as well so they're still a, a force to be reckoned with for sure and it's kind of just been a cup like it's the nature of women's cricket that it comes down to basically one game every two years or three years of uh determines how you're remembered but they are continue to be a force and i think that uh yeah it bodes well for them going into uh you know a, a big couple of years i mean from 2022 onwards that um they can still sort of mix it with the best in the world i guess um and, and amelia kerr has been someone who's been on the radar for quite a while she's still only 19 but seems to be tends going on to another level still 19 yeah no she she, she she's amazing and, and it's 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 yeah i mean she's another like sophie oxen who again in 10 years time we could be looking back and like wow that was a uh, that that was Amelia Kerr's career kind of thing that was uh, quite extraordinary I mean still, not 10 years sorry, 20, 20 <laughs> years yeah yeah so Kerr took two for 18 um and then scored 18 off 10 right at the end of that run chase as New Zealand won the last over so brilliant performance from her um and finally the IPL so the last week has been absolutely mad some crazy games we've had a couple of super overs two of the great run chases Brilliant performances from English players in one of the weirdest innings of all time. And I don't think that's that's hyperbolic at all from uh, Rahul Tawatia. A leg-spinning all-rounder who's 27, he was promoted up the order to number four in Rajasthan's chase of 224. At one point, he was 8 off 19. Another point, he was 14 off 23, with a rate required uh, being 17 runs and over. At this point, Indian Twitter was writing his uh, cricketing obituary in real time. Um, and then he hit six of his next seven balls to six as Radistan won with three ball to spare. Um, that was the highest chase in RBO history, wasn't it? Yeah, that one? yeah. yeah at Sharjah, where, where there hasn't been a score uh, under 200 yet. Um, Jim, are you enjoying the IPL more this year than you have done in the past? Uh, I am, indeed. And I don't know, really know why that is. I think... Because you've got a job in cricket. Yeah, that's why. I've got it because I'm getting paid to watch it. No, <laughs> I'm not. Um, me and, so me and some mates and a couple of my brothers have, have started a sweepstake, which we've never done before, which I think is telling. I think the IPL has come 
a good time sort of back end of the season as it feels like we're heading into a second lockdown so I think we're all sort of embracing it a bit more um comes on at a good time if you're working at home absolutely yeah <laughs> 3, 3 p.m. in the afternoon yeah have a snooze and wake up at three um I think something about uh the IPL has left me a bit cold in the past I don't know if it's the the sheer brazenness of it or the 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 mercenary nature of it the kits it's all a bit much but this year I've embraced it and yeah I'm really loving it and and I watched that innings in real time that uh, I say I say Tuatia you say Tuatia but um let's call the whole thing nominative uh, determinism Uh, but yeah it was incredible it's bonkers isn't it I mean the commentary KP's commentary is it Slats Michael Slater doing it they whip themselves up into an absolute frothy frenzy and it's uh, it's something to behold but when there is something happening such as that it is uh, Definitely a spectacle. Mm, and the, the, the Nicholas Puran bit fielding may oh, yeah. well be the best bit fielding I think I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. uh, and it wasn't a catch. People keep calling it a catch. It wasn't a catch, um, yeah. which, which is important. It was a boundary. It stopped a boundary, right? Yeah. yeah. Not that important. But. It is It is important because it's, <laughs> it's just factually incorrect. Um, <laughs> we, we asked our followers on social media if their perceptions of the IPL have changed this year. Uh, most of them said no, uh, but there were some interesting <laughs> responses. So Tony Bonser wrote, Massively, the IPL is smashing the, the Premier League out of the park right now. No fans in football is dull. The IPL coverage, commentators and the players create its own atmosphere. Mm. Owen, an Australian, says, Aussie follower here, never watched the IPL, never interested in T20 cricket. I'm a pure, purist, but this is absolutely amazing to watch. The IPL, I'm hooked. And Will Nash writes, yes, it's awesome. Although the bowling community needs to fight back with some innovation as the pitches in the UAE are not spicy enough. Um, Phil, do you reckon the IPL's cutting through to more people in the UK this year? I think it's been doing that for a couple of years, actually. Just, just like slowly, slowly becoming slightly I think more it helped when Sky took it. So Sky have covered it for certainly two of the last three years. I think it went elsewhere. Went to BT in 2019. Right, okay, yeah. They certainly covered it the year before, and maybe, maybe the year before that as well. Uh, it used to be on ITV4, and no one really knew about that. Um, Straight after Midsummer Murders, though it was, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Where, and we played at the ground where Midsummer Murders was. Oh yeah, I shouldn't have mentioned no that way. at all. Do you see why I did that? I no shouldn't way. have mentioned no, that. I'm, at all. Totally, I'm definitely cutting this clip. <laughs> what, 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 the, Jim and I played on Saturday. Yeah, and, this is okay, all being fine. cut up. So don't they, they, they both got runs. That's all you need to know. No, this, this is all being cut up. So don't. One worry. of us got more runs than the other. The one who's more keen to talk about we're it talking, got more runs than the other. Some runs are bigger than others. All right. Okay. 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 Yeah. I think it's been. I think it's been kind of embedding itself in, in English cricket and culture for longer than that. And I think obviously since we allowed uh, English players to go and play it and didn't try and string them up on a gibbet for daring to, since that's happened, then it's normalised it, legitimised it among a lot of English English cricket fans, I think. And Jim put it really, really nicely, the sheer brazenness of it. Once you get over that, once you allow your English reserve and attractive scepticism to be sort of parked and then you can go with it then you end up being taken by its 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 ridiculous charms i suppose um i found the charger games quite hard to watch because a boundary that's literally 50 40 45 50 yards away makes a mockery of the game but isn't it quite interesting though knowing that 18 and over is still doable because you don't actually see that it is up to a point but it is up to a point but i just find it gluttonous really and i watched the game last night uh, which was played at Abu Dhabi, which is obviously a completely different ground. Um, 
Might have been Abu Dhabi. Might have yeah, been. it was. Yeah. So, okay. So played at Abu Dhabi, far bigger ground. Uh, 160 plays, 130, 140 in the end. Delhi came up short against the Sunrisers. And that to me was a far more rewarding game of cricket. You know, Bairstow made 50 in 45 balls. Warner made a few uh, strike rates, 130, 140. Uh, and Rashid Khan was absolutely brilliant and won the game. And a bowler won the game. And Kane Williamson in the finishing role, which you yeah. don't normally Yeah, he played one with. shot over extra cover with all hands, which was absolutely stunning. But Rashid Khan won the game. Now, Sunrisers won that tournament two or three years ago because they had the best bowling attack. But if you look at it now, and they're playing a lot of games at Sharjah, then that lovely element of 20 over cricket that the best bowlers are still mm. all powerful is massively reduced I think um, so do you not think the bowlers still have obviously the run rates are way higher but their impact is still the same right because they can prevent you know there's still, there still is a difference between a 25 run over and a 20 run over and that still is in I, 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 think, power, I, think, is I think the mockery potential is is raised up even further uh, with those boundaries as they are I mean when Pat Cummins goes for 15 and over from three overs in the first game they played at Sharjah and I know you know quicks can sometimes go for a bit but to me I find that just a harder watch simple as that uh, but this is not to denigrate the overall wild wonderfulness of the tournament at all um, there's another element to all of this Virat Cody can't buy a run <laughs> or, or and he can't oh, catch but really I haven't seen that dropped a few catches as well didn't he but he, he did so he did make three off 11 in the first innings of the game and then back himself to come out in in the super, in the super over, and then knocked off the winning runs, which was uh, uh, just a very, very, very. Out. But that, but that game, to be honest, for me, it uh, adds on on Yaz's point about bowlers and how they actually can become more important in high scoring games because you had, I think, was it Washington Sundar in that game bowled four overs for fourteen or something in a game where it was two hundred plays to hundred, and then that ends up being more important than like you know okay. a, a forty right. ball eighty. So, in so fairness, it, that was at the Dubai. That was a Dubai. Not no, sure, yet. but but it's 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 more the point about. I don't, I don't think the fact that, I mean, you do get good balls go for six and you do get good bowlers go for, you know, 15 and over. But I also think that high scoring games can give the uh, the very best bowler having, you know, a very good day, the chance to have like more of an impact than they could have in any other ga- game really because of that. For me, one of the most interesting things has been how the teams that have historically not been that good are doing quite well and the teams that have been historically very good are not doing that well. So the, the, the bottom four at the moment are Mumbai, Sunrisers, KKR Chennai Super Kings, the, the historical I've got never, Mumbai never win their first four or five games, though, do they? They always creep into the quarters or the, the last four and then they win it. It goes on until after Christmas, doesn't it? There's ages to yeah. go as well. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I've got KKR, they're not doing so well at the moment. Uh, no, oh, they're, they're, team, right? KKR. Yeah, yeah. And I've got um, Dre Russell as my as my gun bat to get the most runs, which. Well, he's got a bat first. They bat him so <laughs> low in I the think order. He's got 11 runs. So <laughs> far. Uh, KL, Raul been probably the batsman of the tournament no, so far. No, he hasn't. He hasn't. Actually, I've already been up there. No, it's no, this no. other guy. No, but, no, but I was actually going to bring up Samson? His, I was going to bring up his innings the other day and again Ben and I got quite nerdy about uh, specific bits in uh, that's no T-T-T. great revelation, is it? <laughs> yeah, that always drags me into his notice as well. I'm always there as <laughs> yeah, a qualifier. Sure. Kicking like, and screaming. Well, no, 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 hang on, hang on. Listen, listen to this. So in that Kings Eleven Radisan Royals game, um, at Sharjah, which, we, we, as we said, is very, very high scoring. Um, Mayank Ag- Agawal and Kael Rahul put on 183 for the first wicket. Agawal scored 106 or 50. Rahul scored 69 or 54, which is such a bad innings on that ground. Um, and I think, was a, my, my theory that was... He late- smashed 100 two days before that, though, wasn't Yeah, he? but that, that innings basically cost us out of the game. Um, ben, my, my theory was confirmed by an article you read, but basically I think that when you have a really high 
uh, opening partnership in the first innings of the game, that conventional cricket logic sets into one of the batsmen who just thinks, I'll get the other guy on strike. But when you've got 10 wickets in hand, you should basically be taking risks all the time. And Rahul showed the other day, playing one of the innings of the tournament, that he is obviously capable of it. Um, And that, that innings basically cost his side the game yeah especially because he significantly slowed up towards the end I think he scored seven off his last 12 or something so he was going at a good rate and then sort of you see the guy at the other end is is smashing it and so you think okay well if I get uh you know three singles every four balls getting back on the strike then I'm doing a good job and I think that that is a, there is a slightly flawed logic in that especially when you set given your team such a good start like if, you, if you're scoring 100 off the first or if you, if you at Sharjah if you have a 100 run opening partnership you should be like sort of threatening to break all sorts of records really rather than like in the end getting not too far over 200 like uh so uh yeah I, th- I think there is certainly a point to be made about and it's i think i mean the fact that he scored so so towards the end it sort of suggests he kind of just maybe lost a little bit of of form i suppose but i mean you can just step out and sort of uh just hit one into the deep at that point and you realize that actually you just need to take you, you can just try and hit every ball six at that point because there isn't really a downside going back to to Artia. That was what was so amazing about that innings is the t- the sheer torture that you could see on his face for the first 20 balls where he couldn't get a bat on it. He didn't know which way it was spinning. He'd been promoted to do this job. And then it raised this question about um, forced retirements, yeah. about whether you know whether he should just run past one or tread <laughs> on his stumps or be subbed off, which I thought was a really interesting topic and that some of the commentators were talking about it. But I'm just so against that. I just think, it's, you, you, you know, you've got to stick it out and that's part of cricket. You know, sometimes you, you're going well and then all of a sudden he switched and he's smashing five, six, five sixes and six balls. Uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a weird old innings, but fascinating viewing. Yeah, I mean, I, I, still, I still think fourth time should probably still happen in T20 cricket, I think. Like, for example, more, more that Kale Rahul knock, like if he is struggling at Sharjah. No, that's what's, but that's the human nature of it, Yaz. You've got to revel in that. But you want to win? But they shouldn't have sent him in <laughs> in the first place then. That's, that's the, the pressure builds and that's what's... The, the fielding side shouldn't be punished for building pressure. We can do a whole separate one on this. Anyway. This is true. I think. Yeah. I think. And it, there's a, as, I, as I said, there's a long way to go in the IPL, and I'm sure we will yeah. have an opportunity to talk about that particular debate in the future. Anyway, thanks, Phil. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Thank Ben. You. This has been the Wizard in Cricket Weekly podcast. If you enjoyed the show, tell a friend. And if you're feeling especially nice, why not leave us a five-star review on the podcast app? Cheers. Podcast Network.